8. Tragedy and Triumph for the Currency School The Aftermath As the Jacksonians and other currency counterparts in the United States might have predicted, the Currency School harbored a tragic flaw, an Achilles heel that laid them low and turned their triumph into ashes. The neglect of bank deposits as a coordinate part of the money supply. And so, no sooner had Peel's Act been passed when the Bank of England, happily ensconced in its briar patch of monopoly, central control, and note restriction, but deposit freedom, began to expand its loans and deposits ad libitum. At the end of 1844, bank discounts had been 2.1 million pounds, and total bank credit 21.8 million pounds. By the end of February 1846, however, bank credit expansion had been so intense that its discounts totaled 13.1 million pounds and total credits 35.8 million pounds. In short, in only a little over a year, total bank credits had risen by 64% and discounts by a phenomenal 424%. This expansion was aided by the banks drastically reducing its discount rate from 4% to 2.5%, not only a huge quantitative reduction, but also a lowering of the rate from its traditional penalty rate above the market to the market interest rate, thereby greatly stimulating borrowing from the bank by banks and other debtors. Notes of the Bank of England increased only mildly during this period. The huge rise, as we might expect, took place in bank deposits. In September 1844, bank deposits totaled £12.2 million. By the end of February 1846, they had doubled to £24.9 million. In the course of this enormous expansion, bank gold reserves fell sharply. Most of this expanded bank credit poured into a speculative mania of investing in questionable new domestic railroads. In the years 1845 and 1846, over 180 million pounds of new railroad construction was authorized, about double the total of the entire previous decade. Looking back on the period a few years later, the economist referred to the mad scenes of 1845 and 1846, and to the folly, the avarice, the insufferable arrogance, the headlong, desperate, and unprincipled gambling and jobbing which disgraced nobility and aristocracy, polluted senators and senate houses, contaminated merchants, manufacturers, and traders of all kinds, and threw a chilling blight for a time over honest plod and fair industry. The bank tried feebly to stem the tide during the first half of 1846, but no sooner did bank reserves increase than the bank, which had raised its discount rate to 3.5% in November 1845, dropped it back to 3% the following August. Bank reserves then resumed their steep decline, falling from £10 million in August 1846, a ratio of specie to notes and bank deposits of 
to only three million pounds in April 1847, a ratio of only 20 percent. Again, the bank tried to check the tide it had created and continued to generate, but too little and too late. Interest rates rose with the inflationary boom so that an increase of the bank discount rate to 4% in January 1847 left the rate still under the market, and between 9 January and 10 April, total bank credits rose by 4.5 million pounds and discounts by 3.8 million pounds. By April 1847, the Bank of England, as well as the entire financial and economic system, was in deep crisis. It increased its rate to 5%, but market rates were now up to 7%. Rejecting efforts by a minority of bank directors to raise the rate to 7% or even to 6 the bank made things much worse by keeping its rate at five, and then rationing credit, suddenly cutting off discounts, calling in loans, and refusing to increase loans regardless of the credit quality of the borrower. The bank's refusal to raise rates and instead discriminate in favor of certain borrowers did not, however, save the commercial bank owned by the bank's own governor, W. R. Robinson, from stopping payments in July, or the bank of two other directors from going under in September. The bank's sudden contraction, cessation of loans, and credit rationing caused a severe business and financial panic in April and May of 1847. This drastic therapy finally eased the bank's own condition by the end of May, with the gold outflow temporarily reversing. By the beginning of July, the bank's reserves had doubled from three million pounds to six million pounds, a reserve ratio to deposits of 32 percent. But no sooner had the pressure eased than the bank began to expand again, in the meanwhile making things worse by keeping its discount rate below the market and indulging in selective credit rationing. In September, the Second Great Crisis of 1847 broke, and mercantile failures spread throughout September and October. Thomas Took lamented that these mercantile failures in number and in the amount of property involved in them were unprecedented in the commercial history of this country. In October, the banks began to break, and bank runs began to spread through the provinces. As a result, the frightened banks began to contract their credit and deposits drastically in order to increase greatly their percentage of reserves. The reserves of the Bank of England were down sharply once again to less than 14% of deposits. At that point, the Bank of England threw in the towel and for the first of many crises requested the government to suspend the 100% gold reserve restriction on notes imposed by Peel's Act. Delegations from Liverpool and the North, London private bankers, and members from Scotland also pressed hard for suspension of Peel's Act. The country bank organ, circular to bankers, charged that the London bankers were considering breaking the Bank of England by redeeming all their deposits. One wonders, in that case, how the commercial banks themselves could have avoided being broken in turn. 
At that point, the government predictably, and for the first of many crises, itself threw in the towel by suspending the Peel Act provision of 100% gold reserve restrictions on the issue of Bank of England notes. The government saved the fractional reserve system by obediently suspending Peel's act on 25 October, thereby, of course, saving the day for the banks and alleviating the immediate crisis, at the expense of, in effect, giving up the currency principle and any attempt to tie the monetary and banking system directly to and to the same extent as the behavior of gold. From then on, Great Britain and eventually the rest of the world was stuck with a fractional reserve banking system issuing demand deposits, pyramiding on top of a central bank monopolizing the issue of notes and centralizing the nation's gold, and generating an endless round of boom-bust cycles of inflation and recession. Furthermore, with gold essentially centralized into the reserves of the central banks, it became easy for all these nations, even though allegedly committed to the gold standard, to go off that standard and on to fiat paper whenever any crisis, such as World War I, presented an alleged need for the rapid inflation of money to finance the war effort. The heart and soul of the currency principle was a rigid tie of Bank of England note issue to 100% gold reserve. But if this restriction was to be suspended whenever banks or businesses got into trouble, then the currency principle lay in shambles. As the prominent London banker George Carr Glynn correctly prophesied after the 1847 suspension, the public would expect another suspension in every future crisis. And sure enough, that is precisely what happened. In response to the 1847 crisis, there were committees of parliamentary inquiry in 1847 and 1848, the suspension of Peel's Act during the crisis of 1857 was easier, and while there were parliamentary committees in 1857 and 1858, there was, in contrast to the 1847 crisis, no debate on the floor of Parliament. And the suspension of Peel's Act in 1866 was considered so routine that there was not even the bother of a parliamentary committee of inquiry. It is therefore remarkable that from the time of the first suspension in 1847, the currency school, without exception, defended the suspension of Peel's Act, giving no sign of realizing that they were thereby abandoning their entire doctrine. For not only did suspension in crises weaken the point of the act, but also the knowledge that suspension would come to the rescue in any crisis emboldened the bank and banking system to expand credit as if the restrictions of Peel's Act did not exist at all. As a result, all that was left of the currency principle was the monopolization of notes by the Bank of England. 9. De facto victory for the banking school it is a cliché that people are often appalled at the consequences of achieving their long-cherished goals. 
Because of the neglect of deposits, the enactment of the currency principle in Peel's Act in no way moderated bank credit expansion or the boom-bust cycle. Given the dashing of their dreams, the currency school, as in the case of all ideologues whose God has failed, could take several alternative courses of action. The most courageous would have been to admit that their principle was deeply flawed, to concede defeat, and to go back to the drawing board. Unfortunately, human beings are so constituted that they rarely opt for this noble course. Certainly none of the currency school distinguished themselves in this crisis. Instead, they took the route that all too many schools of thought, including the Marxists, have traveled, stoutly proclaiming that their theory is in excellent shape, while subtly but vitally redefining what the theory is all about. For example, before 1844, the currency school, especially Colonel Torrens, adopted a monetary theory of the business cycle. Economic fluctuations were generated by bank credit expansion, led by the Bank of England, which led to inflation and booms, after which the inevitable contraction brought about bankruptcies and recessions. No sooner did the cycle of 1844 to 1847 occur, however, when the currency men backtracked, virtually joining their old enemies of the banking school. The banking school had always proclaimed that banks and the money supply were merely passive respondents to boom-bust cycles generated by non-monetary forces in the real economy. Usually, the culprit was mysterious waves of speculation, presumably driven by waves of over-optimism and over-pessimism. Now the currency school, even Colonel Torrens, proclaimed that they had never ever promised an end to the business cycle, which is, after all, governed by such non-monetary forces as speculation and over-optimism and pessimism. The most that regulation of the currency could do, the currency school now opined, is to eliminate whatever part of the business fluctuations were caused by movements of the money supply. And this, they staunchly affirmed, Peel's Act had indeed accomplished. The business cycle of 1844 to 1847 might have been severe, but it would have been far worse if Peel's Act and the currency principle had not been in effect. Thus Colonel Torrens, in numerous apologies for Peel's Act, put the blame for the boom of 1844 to 1846 on overtrading and railway speculation, as if this speculation had come out of the blue and was not the consequence of cheap, expanding bank credit. He also mentioned that one aspect of the inflationary boom was rapid conversion of floating to fixed capital, that is, a sinking of liquid capital into an excessive amount of fixed, long-range investment. Again, there was no hint that it was excessive bank credit that had generated this overinvestment. It is revealing to compare two critiques by Torrens of Mill's contention that the currency school claimed to be able to cure all business cycles and commercial revulsions. 
1844, in reply to Mill's essay in Westminster Review, Torrens pointed out that the currency school claimed to eliminate not all revulsions, but only those originating in a currency fluctuating alternately above and below the level to which a purely metallic currency would perform. But in his point-by-point -point 1857 critique of the banking chapter in Mill's Principles, Torrens shifted the emphasis. Instead of paring down monetary-based fluctuations to gold currency, Torrens now claimed that most fluctuations began not in overissue by banks, but in disturbances not caused by money, which left the money supply out of harmony with the gold supply. Furthermore, Torrens was now easily able to cite Lloyd and Norman in support. Lloyd, too, now focused on the alleged non-monetary causes of fluctuations. Focusing, as the banking school had long done, on optimism and speculation, Lloyd declared that so long as human nature remains what it is and hope springs eternal in the human breast, speculations will occasionally occur and bring their attendant train of alternate periods of excitement and depression. Thus, with the currency school coming to agree with the banking school on the primacy of non-monetary and the passive dependence of monetary causes of the cycle, the way was paved for a de facto consensus between the two schools. Since the currency school seemed content with the existing system so long as it enjoyed the label of the currency principle, the money supply was now deemed passive enough. At the same time, the Bank of England had enough real discretion and flexibility to satisfy the banking school and reconcile it rather easily to the status quo. Thus James Wilson, a leading banking school critic of Peel's Act, was readily able to vote for its continuance in the Parliamentary Committee of 1857 and 1858. The banking school was content in the British banking system of 1844 to 1914 to achieve the substance of their own creed while allowing the proud currency men to bask in the name. For their part, the currency men enjoyed the laurels of an empty victory. Norman, Torrens, and Lloyd, after 1850 made Baron Overstone, enjoyed great prestige while proclaiming the status quo a triumphant embodiment of their principles. The Bank of England's directors were happy to embrace the supposedly restrictive currency creed, and new currency epigones relayed what had become standard doctrine misinterpreting the existing system as currency-like and ignoring the entrenching of the boom-bust cycle in economic life. With the currency school now committed to the banking school's non-monetary over-trading theory of the business cycle, and with such hard money and free banking writers as Robert Mushet and Henry Parnell gone from the scene, the currency analysis of the business cycle disappeared by default. Of the banking school analysis, the most important elaboration of the non-monetary cycle theory was that of James Wilson in his Capital, Currency, and Banking, 1847. 
Wilson developed what might be called a non-monetary overinvestment theory, which foreshadowed the later Austrian cycle theory, but lacked the crucial monetary causal element. He focused on railroad overinvestment as the cause of the 1844-1847 cycle, and persistently predicted a crisis based on his analysis from 1845 until the time of the crash. In Wilson's brilliant analysis, the boom begins with the excessive investment of savings in fixed capital. Savings are floating or circulating capital, the wages fund that goes into the hiring of workers and buying of raw materials. But because of a sometime propensity to overtrade, businesses may invest in fixed capital beyond the annual supply of savings. Too many money savings are poured into the production of fixed capital, whereas too few are used to produce consumer goods. In short, the boom is characterized by an undue shift of resources from consumption goods to capital goods. The increased expenditure on fixed investment of capital, in the 1845 case heavy railroad investment on the other hand, increases wages in the hands of consumers. But as the consumers come to spend their wages on a lower supply of consumer goods, the price of consumer goods will inevitably rise. In short, consumption and investment have become excessive in relation to the savings available. In response to the rising prices of consumer goods, consumer goods producers will attempt to expand output and thereby increase their demand for capital, that is, their demand for loans. But the dearth of savings in relation to the demand for capital will bring about a rise in the rate of interest, and the sharp rise in interest rates will precipitate a recession. In short, the fixed investment boom producers, in this case the railways and suppliers of railway material, would be forced into a sharp scramble with the producers of consumer goods for suddenly scarce capital, and the resulting crisis and depression causes the abandonment or indefinite postponement of the excessive fixed investments. During the Depression, excessive investment is abandoned, resulting eventually in recovery to a sound and normal condition. Thus Wilson, in addition to seeing the unwise and excessive investment, as well as the overconsumption and under-savings of the boom, demonstrated how the boom is the economic distortion that necessarily generates the unhappy but curative depression that finally restores a sound economy. He also saw how a rise in interest rates, as a signal of overconsumption and undersaving, brings about the restorative recession. In addition, he realized that a lack of savings was a key to the recession, and concluded that greater savings would help speed the recovery. While there is surely over-investment in the higher orders of capital goods during a boom, Wilson misfired when making his sharp distinction between floating and fixed capital. To Wilson, money savings going into fixed capital are somehow lost or sunk, 
and thus disappear from the payment of wages. The problem is not in fixed versus floating capital, however, but consumption as against overinvestment of all types in the higher orders of capital, whether in fixed plant or greater inventory of raw materials. But the greatest problem in Wilson's discussion was his neglect of money. Money, he believed, was merely a device for facilitating exchanges, and therefore could never be a cause of economic fluctuations, but only an effect. And yet, if money was not involved, where do the railway firms get the new money to spend, even though savings have not risen? The only answer which Wilson neglects is an increase in money and bank credit loaned to those firms. And if the money supply has not increased, why are the increases of wage payments by railway firms and other capital producers not offset by declines of wage payments in consumer industries? In short, why does the general level of prices increase from the beginning of the boom? Why don't consumer prices at least initially fall? The answer, once again, is the increase in the supply of money and credit that generates and fuels the boom. And finally, why can't the general run of businessmen, including the railway magnates, realize that their investments are outrunning savings? And why does the eventual critical rise in interest rates come as a shock? The answer, once more, is that the expansion of bank credit artificially lowers the interest rate and lures business firms into the fatal overinvestment. Despite the fact that Wilson insisted that a quantity of money must not be confused with capital, he yet fell into the old Smithian trap of considering the supply of gold as idle and unproductive capital, and so he believed that capital could be increased and the depression greatly eased by government issue of 20 million pounds of small one-pound notes, which would replace the idle and unproductive 20 million pounds of gold in circulation. This huge issue, Wilson assured his readers, would not be inflationary, because it would simply add to capital, and besides, he added smugly, no inflation could exist, since the paper notes would continue to be convertible into gold. But what sort of gold convertibility, what sort of gold standard exists when gold is supposed to disappear from circulation? The lesson is that regardless how much devotion is professed to laissez-faire or the gold standard, at the heart of every banking school man, including those professing a free banking position, lies an unreconstructed inflationist. In his Principles of Political Economy, 1848, John Stuart Mill set forth a cycle theory that blended Wilson's analysis with a Tookian emphasis on commodity speculation, and unfortunately brought in the Ricardian gloom about the alleged inevitable tendency toward a falling rate of profit as agriculture yields ever lower returns. 
Mill, in short, fused the standard took banking school emphasis on speculation, over-optimism, and over-trading with Wilson's analysis of the conversion of circulating into fixed capital. Once again, the doctrine was non-monetary, with money playing a passive, non-essential, and at best secondary role. Thus, Mill adopted Wilson's railroad investment theory of the cause of the recent 1845 to 1847 cycle. The Ricardian motif led Mill to anticipate Schumpeter and hail the inflationary boom as necessary and vital to the achievement of economic growth, by enabling a periodic escape from the falling rate of profit. As a result, Mill was among the first to develop the idea that business fluctuations tend to repeat as recurring cycles, a process which he considered beneficial. He was not worried about recessions, since the contraction and Say's law ensured a rapid return to full employment and prosperity. There was another important reason for the effective fusion of the currency and banking schools after the enactment of Peel's Act. Both these groups, after all, were dedicated to retention of the gold standard as their top monetary priority, even though the banking school version tended to be highly attenuated. But as soon as the great crisis of 1847 occurred and brought monetary and banking controversy back to Britain, the ultra-inflationist opponents of the gold standard came on the attack, calling either for fiat money inflation or, at best, a bimetallic gold-silver standard. In the face of this onslaught, the currency and banking schools closed ranks, which largely accounts, for example, for James Wilson's voting to retain Peel's Act in 1858. In fact, it took no more than the crisis of 1847 to encourage the men of Birmingham to resume their assault on gold. Matthias Atwood's old fiat money pamphlet was promptly reprinted. A Birmingham delegation headed by George Frederick Muntz called upon the Prime Minister, and the Birmingham Currency Reform Association sent a memorial to the Queen. The Times felt called upon to denounce the Birmingham men in an editorial, and T. Perronette Thompson warned a friend of an increasing flow of half-mad pamphlets from Birmingham and other sectors in the north of Britain joined in the cry. The Liverpool Currency Reform Association was active enough to be denounced in two issues of The Economist, and Scotland revealed its inflationist bent by an anti-gold article in the Tory Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine. Furthermore, an organizing convention of the National Anti-Gold Law League was held in Glasgow and was attended by 3,000 people. The threat of silver bimetallism also surfaced during the crisis of 1847. Particularly important was the powerful banker Alexander Baring, now Lord Ashburton, always ready to ride his hobby horse of bimetallism and a petition of a number of influential merchants, bankers, and traders of London against the Bank Act. 
Wilson denounced the bimetallist doctrine of Ashburton and the London petitioners as extraordinary and most inexplicable and unreasonable. So serious was the bimetallic threat considered that the two stalwarts of the currency school, Lloyd and Torrens, collaborated in writing an anonymous pamphlet in a point-by-point rebuttal of the London petition. The telling thrust in the Torrens-Lloyd polemic was to show that the logic of the bimetallist position pointed straight to the far more consistent, though far more dangerous, policy of Birmingham fiat money. The Birmingham philosophers are consistent reasoners, and have the sagacity to perceive that an arbitrary extension of the paper circulation is incompatible with the maintenance of a metallic standard. The inferior logicians who have signed the London petition while demanding the establishment of a double metallic standard are unable to perceive that an extension of paper money through the exercise of the relaxing power for which they pray would render impracticable the maintenance of any metallic standard. The high-water mark of the assault on gold came in votes in Parliament in 1848. In the Commons Committee, the veteran radical leader Joseph Hume's motion denouncing Peel's act for aggravating the crisis of 1847 was defeated by a vote of 13 to 11. The eleven supporters included a coalition of free banking remnants like Hume, inflationists and protectionists like the Birmingham Tory Richard Spooner, and bimetallists like Thomas Baring and Lord Bentinck. Furthermore, the report of the House of Lords Committee criticized Peel's Act and recommended watering down the restrictive provisions on banknotes, While the committees were deliberating, the veteran anti-bullionist John Charles Harries moved to repeal the limitations on banknotes of the Act of 1844 and all the Acts of 1845. Here was a rallying point for all soft currency men of whatever stripe, Birmingham men, bimetallists, or soft gold men. Harry's motion lost rather narrowly by a vote of 163 to 142. The major speeches for the motion came not from the moderates, but from Birmingham men like Richard Spooner. In answer to Spooner, the great Robert Peel rose and pointed out that although Birmingham doctrine was in a small minority within the House of Commons, Outside the House, of those who talk about the currency and write about the currency, the vast majority, indeed nine-tenths, agree with Spooner, that is, want issues of paper without the check of convertibility. Whether Peel was overreacting to what he considered expressions of evil, or whether his raising the specter of Birmingham was a ploy to rally the troops, that tactic was successful, and Harry's motion to consider the reports of the Lords and Commons Committees was defeated without even coming to a formal vote. From then on, for a decade, the specter of Birmingham was enough to win the moderate gold men and the banking school to an all-out defense of the Peel Act status quo. 
During the mid-1850s, Wilson's economist followed this path, and the veteran currency man James Pennington wrote a worried letter to a friend that there is just now a widespread clamor calling for repeal of that act, the Bank Act of 1844, which clamor, if it prevails, will, I think, be followed by a clamor equally loud for doing away altogether with the obligation of specie payments. We may fittingly close our discussion of the aftermath of Peel's Act by focusing on two important contributions, after the passage of the Act, by the wisest of the currency school, Colonel Robert Torrens. In the course of his critique in 1857 of the banking school chapter of Mill's Principles, Torrens added another vital point in criticizing the view that banks, being passive, can have no power to increase their liabilities, and hence have no power to raise prices. Torrens trenchantly pointed out that Mill excludes from his consideration the important fact that banks possess in themselves the power of increasing and diminishing the demand for banking accommodation when they raise the rate of discount. The demand for accommodation contracts, and when they lower the rate, it expands and unless he is prepared to disprove the fact that banks can lower the rate of discount, he cannot consistently maintain that their power of increasing the issue is limited. Amidst all the assaults on the Peel's Act system by Birmingham fiat moneymen, by metalists, remnants of free bankers, and banking school adherents, it is remarkable that apparently not a single writer, parliamentarian, or man of affairs called for a tougher policy of plugging up the enormous hole in the currency system by extending the 100% reserve principle to deposits as well as notes. Not a single currency man admitted any flaw in his previous position, nor advocated, like Jacksonians in the United States, pressing on to a full 100% reserve position on all bank demand liabilities, including deposits. The closest that anyone came to this view was Colonel Torrens, in a poignant moment in the history of economic thought, in his last published work at the age of 77, Torrens wrote a review in the January 1858 issue of Edinburgh Review of the collected tracts and other publications on metallic and paper currency by his old friend and ally Samuel Lloyd, Lord Overstone, edited by John R. McCullough. After eulogizing the contributions of Lord Overstone and once again defending Peel's act, Torrens went on to try to explain the business cycle culminating in the recent crisis of 1857. In sharp contrast to his surrender a decade earlier to the banking school in blaming over-trading for the crisis of 1847, Torrens now strongly affirmed that were there no overbanking, there could not be, except for brief periods, overtrading and excessive speculation. And the overbanking, since Peel's Act, clearly meant deposits. For Torrens could scarcely ignore the fluctuations that were occurring in the amount of bank deposits. 
Discussing deposit banking, Torrens emphasized that by creating new demand deposits through loans, the banks exerted the same influence upon the markets as an increase in the numerical amount of the circulation of notes. Torrens had always been the only currency man to understand the true monetary importance of deposits. Now he pressed on to a vigorous condemnation of the commercial bankers and their expansion of deposits in the recent boom, as well as their contraction and bankruptcy during the crisis. Thus Torrens bitterly inquired, are the scales of justice held even when a petty thief or the forger of a five-pound note is treated as a felon, and when the speculating banker obtains from the court of bankruptcy a full liquidation of his debts, and receives from sympathizing friends and half-ruined creditors the means of recommencing his disreputable and mischievous career? Torrens went on to show how additional loans from deposits produce effects upon prices, upon commercial credit, and upon the exchanges, results analogous to those produced by additional issues of bank notes. Virtually conceding that Peel's Act suffered from not being applied to deposits, Robert Torrens now conceded that even under a currency exclusively metallic, that is, coins without notes, overbanking and the insolvency of discount houses may occasion disasters as formidable as those which can result from an unrestricted use of bank notes and a suspension of cash payments. In his conclusion, Torrens expressed strong doubt whether the advantages of discount deposit banking, even when conducted under a metallic currency, balance the evils it inflicts. It seems that Torrens was on the brink of advocating the extension of the currency system to deposits, and perhaps if he had lived to write more on money and banking, he would have done so. 10. Currency and Banking School Thought on the Continent The flowering of the currency and banking school debates in Britain, coupled with the later burgeoning of central banking on the continent, led to similar controversies in France and Germany in the 1850s and 1860s. Generally, the results were the same— pseudo-currency triumph in the same sense that the central bank acquired a monopoly of note issue, and de facto banking school victory in elastic, fractional reserve banking and repeated increases and declines in the supply of money. In France, laissez-faire thought flowered among economists who proved themselves the true heirs of J.B. Say. Professors, journalists, the long-lasting Société d'économie politique, the Société's Journal des économistes, both launched in 1842, and several other scholarly and popular periodicals were dedicated to the free trade and laissez-faire cause. In that atmosphere, the French economists naturally plumped for free rather than central banking. 
Most of them, unfortunately, felt constrained to adopt banking school doctrine so as to maintain that freely competitive banking, like banks in general, can never issue excessive notes or bring about a business cycle. They were a far more genuine free banking group than the British, who, as we have seen, were special pleaders for commercial banking interests rather than consistent advocates of free banking. Indeed, in this, as in other areas, the French, in contrast to the hesitant, muddled, and pragmatic British, were not afraid to be consistent, rigorous, militant, and therefore extremist advocates of individual liberty and free exchange. One of the leading and one of the most interesting of the French free banking theorists was Jean-Gustave courcel Sonwil. 1813-1892. Courcel, as one historian writes, was in favor of absolute freedom and unlimited competition, and was the most uncompromising of all the free bankers in France. The sole permissible regulation, in his view, was one aimed simply at the prevention of fraud. J. Edward Horn, 1825-1875, was another notable French free banking theorist. In his La Liberté des Banques, 1866, Horn went so far as to challenge the idea that the state must have a monopoly on coinage. He pointed out that private investment bankers could easily gain as much public confidence in the circulation of their coins as has the state, Horn noted that the state is far more likely to suspend the obligation of a central bank to redeem in specie than grant such a boon to the smaller individual banks. In the paraphrase of Vera Smith, Horn called attention to the greater possibility that the liability of such a central bank to pay out specie on demand would be revoked with its consequence of pure paper money in place of notes convertible into coin. A bank under state patronage always counted on the government to relieve of its obligation to pay when nearing insolvency, and its bankruptcy became legalized instead of its having to go into liquidation and suffer the usual penalties of insolvency. This history of privileged banks had undeniably been full of bankruptcies. Horn went on to insist that under free banking, any refusal whatever to pay in specie on demand must mean instant liquidation for the errant bank. Only then could a free banking system work. Horn notes, if banks of issue were given to understand, however, that they were positively and irremediably responsible for their acts, and had themselves to bear the consequences, they would be as prudent in their policy as any other business concern. The problem is how could government be trusted to enforce prompt specie payment on the banks, especially if many or most banks get into trouble at the same time. Courcel and Horn were both heavily influenced by James Wilson's circulation into fixed capital analysis of the boom. But both men, while stressing with the banking school that banks cannot over-issue their notes, 
did admit, in contrast to Wilson, that banks could and did err in fueling overinvestment in fixed capital during the boom. Interestingly enough, Horn, Courcel, and many of the French free bankers felt they had to deny by legalistic quibbles that even bank notes were money, since money in the legalistic, though not economic sense, must be strictly confined to the standard specie in which notes were convertible. But the most fascinating theorists were the tiny intrepid band of Frenchmen who believed in free banking and at the same time were rigorous currency school ultras, who despised as fraudulent and inflationary all fiduciary media, all bank liabilities beyond 100% specie reserve. They believed, quite plausibly, that neither a monopoly-privileged bank nor the government that backed it could be long-trusted to maintain 100% gold reserve banking. The leader of this little band was Henri Carnouchi, who, writing two tracts in 1865, declared that the important question was not monopoly note issue versus plural or free banking, but whether banknotes should be issued at all. His answer was no, since they had the effect of despoiling the holders of metallic money by depreciating its value. If they were at all useful, they should no more than represent metallic money by 100%. Any uncovered notes, any fiduciary media should be ended totally. Carnucci favored free banking because he held that, lacking any special privilege, encouragement, or acceptance by the state, and forced to close the minute banks refused any payment of liabilities, nobody would wish to hold banknotes. As Ludwig von Mises approvingly quoted from Carnucci, I want to give everybody the right to issue banknotes so that nobody should take banknotes any longer. A follower of Carnucci was Victor Modeste, whose policy conclusions were rather different and brought him close to the hardcore Jacksonians in the United States. Modeste was a dedicated libertarian who believed that the state is the master, the obstacle, the enemy, and whose announced goal was to replace government by self-government. Modeste agreed with Courcel and the banking school free bankers that commerce and trade must remain free. He also agreed with them that central monopoly banking was far worse and more damaging than freely competitive banking, and was also opposed to administrative control or regulation of banks. On the other hand, what is to be done about banknotes? In this category, Modeste explicitly included demand deposits, which he saw to be illicit, fraudulent, inflationary generators of the business cycle and bearers of false money. His answer was to point out that false demand liabilities which pretend to but cannot be converted into gold, since they go beyond the value of the gold stock, are in reality equivalent to fraud and theft. Modeste concluded that false titles and values are at all times equivalent to theft, that theft in all its forms everywhere deserves its penalties, 
that every bank administrator must be warned that to pass as value where there is no value, to subscribe to an engagement that cannot be accomplished, are criminal acts which should be relieved under the criminal law. The answer, then, is not administrative regulation, but prohibition of tort and fraud under general law. In Germany, there were few writers influenced by the banking school. Most were currency men. In the rigorous currency tradition was Philipp Josef Geier. Writing in his tract Banks and Crises in 1865 and in another book two years later, Geyer declared that ideally the amount of money in circulation should always remain constant. The money supply is not in fact constant largely because continuing issues of banknotes are not covered by specie. At this point, Geyer contributed one of the first outlines of the Austrian theory of the business cycle, as he pointed out that uncovered banknote issues inject an artificial capital into the economy, and when this artificial capital exceeds the amount of available real capital, overinvestment and overproduction bring about a crisis. However, Geyer then blundered into an inconsistent underconsumption theory while trying to develop his analysis. An academic hard-line currency man in Germany was Johann Louis Tellkampf, 1808-1876. A young Prussian with a doctorate from the University of Göttingen, Tellkampf emigrated to the United States, where he taught first at Union College in law and political economy as well as history, German language, and literature. Then, in 1843, he moved to Columbia College as professor of German language and literature. Three years later, Telkampf returned to Prussia and became professor of political economy at the University of Breslau. He was later elected to the Prussian Senate, where he took a leading part in bank legislation. Telkampf's observations on the problems of decentralized banking in the United States led him to argue for strict 100% specie reserves to banknotes, and for one monopoly central bank to put this plan into effect. Telkampf aided in disseminating the currency principle by co-translating McCullough's defense of the principle into German in 1859. On the other hand, failing the adoption of his 100% specie plan, Telkampf was very willing to consider free banking as a second best. The free bankers in Germany tended to be smaller in number than in France, and currency school rather than banking school men. A notable writer in this camp was Otto Hübner, a leader of the German Free Trade Party. His multi-volume work, Die Banken, 1854, was largely an empirical survey of banks throughout the world, and argued that banks were soundest and least in danger where they were freest and least controlled. Privileged central banks tend to be wildly run and are in danger of insolvency, as note the suspension of specie payment of the Austrian National Bank, which had financed large deficits of the Austrian government. 
Hubner's goal, like Carnucci's in France and like that of Geyer and Telkampf in Germany, was 100% specie reserve to banknotes. His ideal preference would have been for a state-run monopoly 100% reserve in the bank, like the old banks of Amsterdam and Hamburg. But he recognized the problem of inherent mistrust of state banking. As Vera Smith paraphrases Hubner, If it were true that the state could be trusted always only to issue notes to the amount of its specie holdings, a state-controlled note issue would be the best system. But as things were, a far nearer approach to the ideal system was to be expected from free banks, who, for reasons of self-interest, would aim at the fulfillment of their obligations.